We are in Acts chapter 3. We're continuing on in our series, The Giver Gets the Glory. Pastor Ron's message today is all the prophets proclaimed these days, coming from Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. That's page 911 in your pew Bible this morning, if you're using that. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. We're walking through the book of Acts, and I hope as we walk through this book, and as you read it and look at it, that you're asking lots of questions, that that as you read about the church in its infancy and how it began, that many questions just start to bubble up. One of the best ways, I think, for us to get a handle on Scripture is by just asking questions of the text asking things. And it's important, I think, to understand these were the first things, the first time they occurred. We're going to look at the second sermon today of the New Testament church. But last time we were together, as I spoke two weeks ago, we looked at the first miracle that was performed in the church, the healing of the paralytic. And we we talked about the fact that in that healing was a fulfillment of the prophecies that came out of the Old Testament. Prophecies such as Isaiah chapter 35 in verse 4 that says this, Eyes of the blind will be opened, ears of the deaf unstopped, lame men will leap like deer, and tongues of the mute shall be loosed. That's what was happening here. That's what happened in that miracle. It was a sign that the kingdom had come. It had begun. One of the things we talked about was that it had begun, but it hadn't come to its final culmination. 
We live in this age now, in the now and not yet of the kingdom. You understand that, don't you? It's come, it came then, but it's not fully come, it's still coming and will one day be consummated fully. And we live in that age. We live in an age when Isaiah wrote about it was all future. He was talking about last days as he wrote. Well, we're in the last days. The last days began some 2,000 years ago. So when you read scripture and it talks about the last days, you're in them. You're in the middle of them. And they are continuing on. And they will be fulfilled completely and finally at the second coming of Christ. And so all of those kinds of things you want to keep in mind as you read these texts, as you read the things and the accounts that happened in Scripture. Uh, One of the things that we observed two weeks ago, which I hope you're observing these kinds of things, is that the disciples continued to go to the temple. Here they were coming out of, of Judaism. It's all they knew. And so they just did what they knew to do. They went back to the temple for their worship and to meet there. They, uh, they just assumed that, and, and rightly so, they assumed that Jesus was the fulfillment of the scriptures. That's what they come, had come to understand, that all that the prophets had taught were fulfilled in Christ. So why not just continue on? You will find later as you're reading in the book of Acts that it wasn't until Antioch that they were first called Christians. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says, at Antioch, these disciples were first called Christians. So that's a word that came about later. They didn't consider themselves Christians in the sense that we would use the word today as as they went to the temple. They were just Jews who had seen the fulfillment of the promises and that Christ was the fulfillment of all of that. So it's important to keep those things in mind. And one of the things that we said two weeks ago is that we were going to come back to that theme today, come back to talk about the second part of this text now that we've looked at and and the fact that It was emphasized here and re-emphasized by Peter as he preached this second sermon that was ever preached. He basically just talked about the fulfillment of Jesus, of the Old Testament prophets. Two weeks ago, we talked about how they must have marveled as they, as they went to the temple. Can, can you imagine again what it was like for those early disciples as they walked into those courts of the temple and we talked about Actually, a few weeks before that, the fact that the temple was divided into various corridors, a place for the women, a place for the men, a place that only the priests could go into, the holy place, and make sacrifice, and then a place that only the high priest could go in once a year into the holy of holies behind the veil and make sacrifice and atonement for the sins of the people. But only once a year and only one person, and if he made any mistake in there, there was... there was. Um, there was something that was set in place if that happened, and that was that tied on his leg was a rope. And if they didn't hear the bells of his garment jingling as he moved around because he never stopped, he never sat down, he continually ministered in the Holy of Holies, and if there was a time of silence, just they would just pull him out because they didn't dare go in there. They didn't dare enter into the Holy of Holies. But can you imagine how these disciples starting to put some of the things together that had happened. Certainly they had heard that on the hour that Christ had expired, that the 
veil in the temple had been rent in two from top to bottom and how they must have began to realize the significance of all of that and the fact that the scriptures and and the things that they were starting to understand about the scriptures pointed to Christ being that final sacrifice. And all of those things were happening for them. All of those dots were getting connected for the disciples. And that is exactly what happens for someone who maybe is new to Scripture, someone who begins to pick up this Bible and begins to read it, and it seems like a disjointed text. It seems like there's all kinds of different stories and all kinds of various accounts. I remember I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in Sunday school. So when I came into the church, there are all these Bible stories that I didn't learn as a child. I had to figure all of that out. And, and as you start to read it for the first time, it seems disjointed until you begin to understand the theme of it. The theme of the scripture is Jesus. So what these disciples were coming to understand is the theme of all of the Old Testament. All of it had its fulfillment in Christ. The New Testament will later write, the writers of the New Testament will say that all of the promises are yes in Christ, which means again that all that was written was about him, about him being the fulfillment of it. So with that in mind, let me take you to the text this morning. Let me take you to what Peter said, where he went, and the text that he chose as he began to declare these truths to the people who were around that healing of the paralytic, the people who had gathered and had drawn a crowd, and Peter now begins to address that crowd. And, and look how he does it. Look in verse 18 to begin with. It says this, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He thus fulfilled. It was only a six weeks before that, maybe. Maybe a little longer than that. That when Christ was crucified, Peter's world was shattered. He could not understand what that meant. And now he's here declaring that it was all that the prophets had written about. God had opened his eyes to see that it had to happen. And he was proclaiming it to the people. It was what the prophets were declaring. And then you go down a little farther into verses 22 through 25, and it says this, Moses said, Moses, the author of the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up from you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So what does Peter do as he addresses those people? He just again attempts to help them to see how all that they had believed, all that they had surrounded their life with in the Old Testament writings had been fulfilled. And can't you imagine here them, his heart as he just agonized that they would see what he had, he had had revealed to him, what Peter had come to understand, that he could convince these people and where better to go than to the people who knew all of these truths of the Old Testament. And so Peter just starts to tell them, talk to them about 
all that the prophets have proclaimed and how they center now in the one that they had crucified, Jesus Christ. It says there that uh, all of the prophets proclaimed it, every one of them, all of the Old Testament. It also says in verse 25 that the days of fulfillment, a promise had, had been prophesied. In verse 25, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenants that God made to your fathers, saying to Abraham, and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These days, these days of fulfillment, these days of Christ were what they were talking about. These last days now that began there. And he says that the promise that was given to Abraham, and that is, is the promise of the Old Testament, the covenant given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and the promise was that in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. That promise has come to fulfillment in Christ because Christ was in the line of Abraham. Remember the story of Abraham? Abraham was given a son when he was past the age of, of, his wife was past the age of childbearing, Isaac. And so as he was given a son, in that son's line would come the Messiah. So in Abraham, all of the promises that were given to Abraham find their fulfillment in this Christ who comes from the line of Abraham. He's the fulfillment. And, and Peter agonized to, to convey that and to talk about that blessing. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to just talk about what that blessing is. It says there that in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Certainly that speaks about Christ. But what does the coming of Christ promise us? Why is it so significant that Peter would magnify Christ. Why Why Easter? Why Palm Sunday? Why is in the life of the church, in the life in many ways of our nation, is Easter such a significant event? Why? I remember my own heart. As I've told you, I didn't grow up in the church, but there was a hollowness about Easter. Why is that? What is it about that? As it centers in the resurrection of Christ. It's because in that, in that gospel, the promise is that all the nations will be blessed. So what is the blessing? What is it? I want to say and talk about three things in that blessing. The first thing in that blessing, the first thing that they are blessed in is they have reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, with a holy God. Look at verse 19. It says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. When it says there's a blessing in Abraham, and it was Christ, and that blessing that he brings is reconciliation with God. That's paramount. That is, that is, that is the foundational part of the blessing. What Christ's coming did was reconcile us. It provided a remedy for our deepest and most significant problem as people. And that was our sin. Um, it is why Christ came. To bring forgiveness. To bring a way that we could be reconciled back to a holy God. We've said it before, but it bears saying again. In, in 
essence, what happened when Christ came is that God provided a way to save us from himself. He provided a way to save us from himself. In essence, it is God saving us from God. God the Son comes to pay the penalty so that God the Father can have us reconciled to him. I want to turn to the book of Romans this morning and talk a couple of different passages that talk about reconciliation. The first one is in Romans chapter 3, a significant text that we talk about often and have talked about before. But let me read it to you. And here it says to us, beginning in verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest to us. And then it goes on to tell us what that righteousness is. And that righteousness is manifested in Christ. That's that's the manifestation of the righteousness. Him, the, the person of Christ. But it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What's propitiation? It's He comes to take what was due us. He becomes the one who turns away God's wrath. To himself. He bears it in himself. God's, God's displeasure for sin, God's distaste and disgust for sin, he takes it. He takes it in himself. He becomes a propitiation. Um, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's go back a bit. It says, in his divine forbearance, he passed over. What did he pass over? What he passed over were the sins of the people that he was saving. What he passed over were the sins of those who needed to to have a covering for those sins so that they could be reconciled back to himself, to God. And in the Old Testament, there were many Old Testament believers who looked ahead to the promise, who were part of those that God came to save. And, and it looked like for a time that God winked at their sin, that he just slid it under the carpet and forgot about it. That's not what he did. He passed over it for a time, but not forever. He didn't just cast it away as if it didn't happen. But his son came His son came in these days, the days that we live now, in the the last days, and he came to be a propitiation, to be a wrath bearer for the sins of all in the Old Testament who looked ahead to his coming, and now for all of us who look back to his coming. He became our propitiation so that God might justly forgive our sin, that he might not just sweep it under the carpet, but that he might justly forgive it because the price had been paid. Christ had paid that price. This is the wonderful truth of reconciliation, that that God reconciles us to himself by the life of his son, by the life of God the Son taking our punishment. And then you go farther, you go on a bit, 
to Romans chapter 5. And again, here in, in verse 10, it talks about this whole idea of reconciliation and how it happened. It says in verse 10 of chapter 5, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The coming of Christ was to reconcile us to God. And it is done for all who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you've trusted him to be your savior, if you put your hope in him and banked your hope upon him, and you're in him, he is in Isaac who is in Abraham. So the blessing that's promised from Abraham flows all the way to us, all the way to those who trust Christ. The blessing. So the first thing of the blessing is that it brings reconciliation. It's foundational to the gospel. You have to start there. Of all the promises, you have to begin with reconciliation. You have to know that you're reconciled to God. And I think God wants us to know that. He doesn't want us to wonder about that. He doesn't want us to have doubts about that. He's given us promises about that. And he wants us to rest there. It's not about Jesus being a good example. It's not about Jesus living a certain way and we're to model living the way he lived. That's not what the gospel is fundamentally. It is fundamentally about being reconciled to God. And that message is an offense to the common natural man. It's an offense to us. It's an offense to say you need to be reconciled to God. You need to, to be reconciled to a holy God. There's something in us, unless God begins to open our eyes and begins to trouble us with our sin, that, that we don't naturally go there. The gospel is an offense in that sense, but that is why Christ came. That's why what's going to happen here in the church in just a few pages, as you begin to go through the book of Acts, you're going to find that more and more opposition is going to rise up. More and more, the message of Jesus is going to get controversial. Certainly it was controversial to a few in the beginning, to the religious leaders, but it's going to get more and more controversial and more and more pressure is going to get put on these disciples for naming the name of Christ because it's an offense. It's an offense to us naturally to say we need to be reconciled to God. But we do. It's a fundamental problem. We have. We are alienated from him. And, and we need to see that. The most gracious thing that God can do in your life is to show you that. It's the most gracious thing God did in my life. He, he began that process when I was a young, um, probably pre-teenager, just, just coming into my teen years, and a troubling began to come over me. We didn't attend church. We weren't part of any body. But I began to be troubled by my sin began to be troubled by it and, didn't, and, and fearful and, and began to promise God many things that I would do to somehow appease him and, and cause him to, to, to not be um, against me as I, as I just felt that. I felt my sin was an offense to him. But the gracious thing is that God took me there and he helped me to realize that I needed to be reconciled to him. And then it was about probably seven or eight years later where the gospel was presented to me in my high school auditorium. And, and I saw the remedy. I saw 
the remedy for the separation. And, and I saw the remedy to be reconciled to God. And it was in Christ. But that's number one. That's the first thing. The promises, the, the, the thing that it was promised here in this text that, that in you, you will bless all of the nations. You will bless them by bringing reconciliation. The second thing is that you will, you will also do an additional thing. And that is you will help them to persevere in faith, in believing that. The second part of the promise, I think, of the blessing that comes from Abraham is that. Look at verse 20 of the text here this morning, and you will see it there in that verse where it talks about, repent in verse 19, therefore, and turn back, and your sins may be blotted out, reconciliation. And then it says that that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And, and I believe that is about what happens when we're reconciled. When we are reconciled to God, the Holy Spirit is what opens our eyes. God opens our eyes to see our sin and to see the Savior and to put our hope in the Savior. And we're reconciled. And that Holy Spirit begins to dwell in us. God begins to live in us. He brings us to life. And he gives us continually times of refreshing the, the Holy Spirit has been sent back. Christ is back at the right hand of the Father. He said, if I go, I will send the Spirit. And so the Spirit comes. The Spirit came upon the church. The Spirit came to strengthen the church, to strengthen the church, to persevere in their hope of reconciliation, to keep them believing, if you will. Now, the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and we'll see it again and again and again, is to magnify Christ. In John chapter 16 and verse 14, it says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That was Jesus speaking of the Spirit. He will take what is mine and he will reveal it to you. And so the way that God causes us to persevere is the Spirit lives in us. He causes us to persevere by lifting up Christ by continually lifting up and magnifying Christ and helping us to look to Christ and the work that he's accomplished and the beauty of what he's accomplished and causes us to treasure that and hold to that and be strengthened by that. So the second part of the promise, he will reconcile us and then he sends his spirit to give us seasons of refreshing, to strengthen us, to keep us believing, to keep us persevering in faith. And the means by which he does it is the Spirit lifting up Christ in our lives. I believe with all of my heart that the promises of Scripture are that God will give us all the grace we need, all the strength we need by by the Holy Spirit dwelling in his children to live for his glory. And to live for his glory is to continue to magnify his name and lift it up. And then the third thing, the third promise that I think this blessing is, first of all, reconciliation, second of all, persevering in us, and thirdly, the promise of a new heavens and a new earth, promise of a new heavens and a new earth. We alluded to it last time we were together, but if you look at the text in verse 21, it says there a statement um, where it says, until the time for restoring all things. Remember, as I began this morning, I talked about the now and not yet of the kingdom. We are in the now, but not fully now. 
In other words, the kingdom has come, but it's not fully come. And, and what this text means, until the time of restoring all things, until the kingdom fully comes. So we're in that period. The last days are that kind of an existence where kingdom has come. Um, some of the things of the kingdom have come in. That's why at times, like in Acts chapter um, 3, we have this healing where God breaks in and and healing happens. The kingdom comes, but not fully. The, even that person who was healed there... Um, by all accounts, died. He later became ill and died. Brokenness of this age caused him to, to pass away. So he wasn't, fu- it wasn't fully healed. But one day the scripture promises that, that everyone will be fully healed. There'll be no pain. There'll be no brokenness. There'll be no sorrow. Fully the kingdom will come. And I believe it, it will be a time when all things are restored. I think Scripture teaches that there'll be a coming together of the heavens and earth together. And, and much of what, when we talk about heaven in, in the Bible, and when the Bible talks about heaven, um, I believe it is a restoration. In many ways, it's a return to Eden. It's a return to what God saw in the beginning when he looked out on his creation and he declared it is very good. It's a return back to that state. It, it, it won't be exactly like that, but it will be much more like that than it won't be like that. I think one of the things about heaven that is dangerous for us to get in our minds is that it's all discontinuity. That, that when we think about heaven and some of the pictures of heaven, some of the pictures that are drawn about heaven, it's it's all about discontinuity and many times and this would be the extreme of it but many times when you get a picture of heaven you get a picture of harps and angels and ethereal kinds of existence and i alluded to that a couple of weeks ago and said if you grew up as a um a child who struggled with attention deficit kind of things for you to see that kind of existence of st- sitting around and listening to a harp forever does not have illusions of heaven to you. I mean, that doesn't seem like heaven to you. So pictures are incredibly important. And I think one of the things about heaven, one of the things that Scripture talks about is that there will be more, more continuity than we believe. And by that I mean it will be a restoration back to things that are not fully uncommon to us, but will be much different than we can imagine. Because the scripture says, no eye has seen or person imagined what God has in store for us. So there's a place in which there's a level of that we cannot comprehend it fully. It's beyond what we can understand. But I don't think it is all discontinuity because we can't. I think the reason we can't understand it, the reason we can't understand that restoration back to what it's going to be is because of sin. Because even if you take your very best memory in this life, if you take your most cherished memory, the sweetest moment that you can remember in any life existence in your life, I've said this a hundred times, pales in comparison to what God saw when he said it was very good. Because everything in this life, even the most cherished, sweetest memory you know, is tainted by sin, is tainted by brokenness. 
And, and the realization that the promise, this promise for us is that, that God is going to restore it back again. The heavens and the earth come together. I think heaven will be on earth as the heavens and earth come together. And there will be much more continuity than discontinuity. And, and there are things there you can't imagine what it would be like fully. You can have some imagining of what it's like because of the continuity. But the one thing you can't have is you do not know, none of us know here, there's not one person in this room who knows what it's like to not have the propensity to sin. We all have it. It is inherent within it. It's what original sin teaches us. We have a propensity to sin. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you have a propensity to sin. It's there. And it will not fully get rooted out until you get to heaven. But when you do get there, which I think is on earth, as the heavens and earth come together, when you do get there, you can't imagine what it's like not to have it. You cannot imagine what it is like to not have a propensity to sin. That's a glorious thought to me. There will be a day when I don't have even a propensity to sin. That's part of the promise. Part of the promise is God brings reconciliation. Oh, how we need reconciliation. Everyone needs reconciliation. There's a, there's a danger in the world today to get these promises wrong. There's a danger to buy a promise and, and, and to think that's the promise that Jesus made that's not the promise that he made. It sets you up for disillusionment. There, there are ways that evangelism sometimes is done that I think God uses and, and maybe you came to Christ by that approach, but, but it's in spite of it, I think, not because of it. When, when you get somebody coming and sharing about Jesus, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, yes, there's a dimension that he has a wonderful plan for your life, but, but our sin, our propensity to sin, wants to take that and take it places that we want it to go, what that plan should be. We want that plan to be our plan. And if we're not careful, our sinful hearts take it and we think, yeah, I'll, I'll grab that if it'll add something to my life some way. If I can put it on all the rest of the stuff that's there and it'll make life better, why not? The truth of the matter is when, when these disciples were here in the book of Acts, they didn't use that approach because folks right around the corner, Jesus was not going to make their life better. He was going to divide and we'll begin to walk into it in the book of Acts. He brings a division because the natural man left to himself does not want him. Does not see beauty in him. And so we need to be careful. But the promise is that we will be reconciled and that God will be with us as we're reconciled daily, moment by moment, by His Spirit within us, strengthening us, keeping us believing. You understand that once you come to life in Christ, that, that everything uh, that, that Satan has in his arsenal comes at you to, to eat that faith. He wants to destroy that faith. He wants to chew that faith up. But God promises that His Spirit will dwell in His people to keep them believing. 
The days of refreshing will come again and again and again by His Spirit. And that ultimately, as they persevere in faith, that one day, all of the brokenness will be gone. One day, everything will be made new. We will return to what God saw in the beginning when He declared, it is very good. That's what Peter was talking about in Acts chapter 3. All of that. The blessings to the nations. The blessings that Christ brings to people. And one of the things that we see in the rhythm of the church is that the, the church, as we read or a couple of weeks ago, just continually strengthened themselves with those things. It says that they strengthened themselves with the apostles' teaching, with fellowship, with the breaking of bread, communion, the Lord's table, and with prayer. They just kept reminding themselves of those promises. When they would come together in fellowship, they would remind themselves of those promises, remind themselves of Christ's fulfillment and marvel at how he was the fulfillment. And their prayer was continually, and I close with this this morning, their prayer that flowed out of that, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread, reminding themselves of the blessing that they have inherited because of Christ was their prayer was, God, help us to boldly proclaim this. Help us to boldly proclaim the name of Christ. And I believe, folks, that we are, we are not different than them today. That we also need help to boldly proclaim that name. In fact, maybe in more ways than we've ever needed it today. Never has the name of Christ um, been so controversial in my lifetime as it is today. Never has, has the name of Christ um, brought division as it does today. We're starting to see it. Maybe it's because we have 24-hour news cycles. I certainly understand that amps up things and you see more than you ever used to see before around the world and place, taking places in nations. There have been martyrs throughout the centuries and, and CNN didn't pick them up. But it seems to me in this day and age that, that the name of Christ is becoming more and more controversial. And so the, the propensity and the tendency of our hearts it will be to hold back and not to continue to proclaim his name. But the church did it in the beginning and the church is called to continually do it. Not, not by taking up arms, not by taking up the sword, but literally by giving their lives away, being willing to walk in his steps, be willing to walk the road he walked, which was a walk and a road of suffering, strengthened. I believe Jesus was strengthened. We don't have time to go into this. We have before. But I believe he was strengthened the same way that he strengthens his church. That Jesus in his humanity, though he was fully man and fully God, did not rely on his his divinity to strengthen him, but rather on the third person of the, of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the same way the church does, that we might walk in his steps the way he walked, be empowered the way he was empowered by his spirit to boldly proclaim. We began this morning by singing that. We're going to conclude as we go out today the same way. There's a hymn that we sang as we began. Let me just read to you the close of that. The last line of what you sang this morning is this. 
Boldly we proclaim the power of the cross. In every language, art, and deed, we tell the wonder of grace. Then when Christ returns, his church will rise adorned with treasure brought from every land to glorify the Lord. Let's stand and sing in closing this morning. The power of the cross In every language, art, and deed We tell the wonder of grace Then when Christ returns His church will rise adorned With treasures bought from every land To glorify the Lord to the King of the new Jerusalem where all of the saints with one voice will worship the Lamb will forever worship the Lamb Let's pray together Father I pray that as your church to boldly proclaim the name of Christ so that people might be reconciled to your Father and might one day enter into the new heavens and new earth with all the throng who've gone before them declare your glory and praise. Father, your promise is that you reconcile us so that we can experience all of that. It's the hope that propels us, Father. I pray you'll strengthen us with it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in God's name.